Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 110 of Yoga Land. So welcome to another one of our live episodes. We did this episode at Detroit Yoga Lab in Detroit, Michigan in early June during one of Jason's weekend workshops on managing injuries. He will be repeating this workshop in Washington, D.C. this August, and then again in London, I believe it's January of 2019. But go check the schedule for details. It's jasonyoga.com slash schedule. I've been getting a lot of comments and feedback that we're using too much Sanskrit and we're forgetting to offer the English as well. I just want everyone to know I totally hear you and we will do our best. This episode, I had not gotten that feedback yet. So, and you know, occasionally we just forget. What happens is some of the more advanced poses don't have immediate translations for us because we just never learned them that way. So anyway, something that we are trying to be more cognizant of, thanks for offering the feedback. I would have never known. And if for some reason I forget and you ever wonder what a pose is, you can always email me at support at jasonyoga.com. And easy emails I get back to really quickly. So I will definitely email you back. I also just want to say thank you to all the people who added selfies after the social media episode. I was so amazed that so many of you did it and seemingly enjoyed it. It was honestly so awesome to see all of your faces. I look through the grid now. If I just go to the hashtag yoga land stories and I look through the grid, I feel like like a proud mom or something. (laughs) I get kind of emotional looking at it because it's just nice to see who all of you are. So thank you for doing that. Okay, enjoy the episode. We mention a bunch of blog posts, and I will be sure to put those in the show notes. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. We're here in Detroit for another live episode of the podcast. We are. I'm so happy to be here. We have students here watching us and perhaps at the end asking questions, which is exciting. Yep. And we're at Detroit Yoga Lab. I want to just give a shout out to Naomi and her wonderful studio here. That's right. What are you teaching while you're here? Uh, I am teaching a three-day program on injury management for practitioners and teachers. So we focused really on day one. This is our second day. This is the afternoon. We focused on day one on minimizing and managing common knee issues and injuries in yoga. And then we also looked at minimizing and managing common hip injuries. So we looked at labral issues. We looked at hamstring overstretch issues, and we looked at femoral acetabular impingement compression issues on the front of the hip yesterday. And then the majority of today, what we've been working with is sacroiliac challenges, which very few yoga practitioners are unfamiliar with sacroiliac joint issues and challenges. So we've spent a lot of time on that general lower back pain. And then tomorrow's mostly dedicated to shoulder issues. And have we, have we covered any of your eye injury that you <laughs> sustained this week? Okay. So I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, which is very close to Detroit. So this is like coming home and this is literally coming home. Because whenever I teach here or in Cleveland, I stay in Toledo. Now, strangely enough, there are two very, very high-level, internationally known 
jujitsu players who run an academy in Toledo. That you just discovered. That I just discovered. I'm very excited about it. (laughs) And so my mother, before I walked out the door, said, try not to get beat up too badly. That's what my loving mother said to me. Okay? That's what she said to me. Ex-hockey mom. Ex-hockey mom. Okay. So as a very strange fluke incident, I caught, got caught very hard with an elbow and it looks pretty good. It's really. (laughs) You should have seen me on Monday. Yeah. It looks pretty good. From my perspective. Yes. I can't remember. I was like out with Sophia somewhere. I came home. You were gone. Your parents said, oh, he went, he went to train. I made dinner. We all sat around the table. Jason walked in (laughs) with the biggest shiner I've, I mean, he's been doing jujitsu for several years. Like I'm used to little cuts and scrapes and abrasions. Yeah. I mean, I thought your eye was going to fully be shut. It's not. But it's not. It's not. It's just lovely shades of eyeshadow and yeah. it's changed every day. Yeah. 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 So, yes. So that injury, you know, one of the nice things about yoga is we usually don't get traumatic injuries. <laughs> in yoga, in yoga, the majority of the injuries that occur are overstretch overreach injuries and repetitive stress injuries. But fortunately, we don't take too many elbows to the eye. No, not unless you... You know, really how, sometimes, you know how sometimes an injury looks worse than it is? And then sometimes an injury doesn't look as bad as it is? This one, this one looks as it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this, one is, this one has hurt. Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing about an yeah. eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was, okay. You guys, there was an eye patch involved. I mean, it was there really... There was an eye patch involved. I actually have a photo. Do you? I took a photo. I said that he was trying to be like that 80s um, soap star. If anybody remembers, there was like a... His name was Patch. Anyway. What, what was it on? Days of our lives. Days of our lives. Thank patch. you. Yeah. I've always looked up to Patch. He's doing anything to get attention these days. It's depressing. So I'm going to jump in with our questions. Okay. We'll just see how many we get through. And some of these came from Instagram and some of these came from... Submissions. Submissions. Emailed submissions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So question number one. I've recently started having some SI discomfort and... Welcome to yoga. (laughs) And have been advised by an osteopath to avoid all warriors and seated twists. I want to continue doing yoga, but my SI discomfort only goes away if I don't practice for a few days. No pain while in the poses, just after. I'd love to know what your take is on avoiding these poses when SI problems are present. Love the podcast. Thank you, Andrea, for all you share. I didn't mean to read that last part. Whoa, whoa, what about Jason? (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's this person's name? I don't know how I read that. It just came out. Gonda? Come on, Gonda. (laughs) You know, yoga teachers are insecure, right? Okay. <laughs> so first of all, fortunate for Gonda to have an osteopath. Um, osteopathy is really great. And uh, in certain parts of the world, there's much more access than other parts of the world. So good that she has that access to a good osteopath. Yeah. And I wouldn't disagree, even if I disagreed. But I don't disagree with the sentiment that the osteopath is providing, okay? And I think that one of the challenges for the the warrior family, especially warrior one, warrior one I think is trickier for the SI joint than warrior two, Mm. although warrior two is also tricky. And if you step back and think about it, there's a relationship between warrior one 
Warrior 2 and twists. In that in Warrior 1 and Warrior 2, you have a rotational component. So it is probably the twisting component of the Warrior 1 and Warrior 2 that is uh, the thing that is aggrieving her. Mm-hmm. This person. Okay. Yeah. When I read that question, I yeah. actually thought this osteopath does yoga. Probably. Because, I mean, to be that specific and actually kind of nail it is yeah. pretty yeah. amazing. So to take it just a quick step back, there's never, when, when someone comes up to me with an injury or a condition, whatever it is, there's ne- there's it's very rare that I wholesale just up front say, don't do this, don't do that. Mostly what I say is, let's step back, let's pay attention to what the symptoms are. Then come up to me afterwards, let me know what the symptoms are and when they presented themselves, and then let's look at your poses and work backwards from there, okay? Um, but let's, let's, let's take it as an accurate assessment for this person that the warrior poses and twisting are the things to avoid. Well, let's look at what's happening in those scenarios and what maybe she can do that is similar to warrior one and similar to warrior two but that removes the sort of rotational component or downplays the rotational component. Okay, so let's think first about Warrior One. Even though in Warrior One, many teachers talk about squaring the hips to the front of the room, the hips don't ever get squared to the front of the room unless you take an unbelievably short stride, in which case there's almost no liveliness to Warrior One. And so even if you shorten the distance between the feet and also broaden the width of the feet, if you shorten and broaden the stride, shorten the distance, broaden the feet, it's easier to rotate the pelvis. And then therefore you have to rotate the spine less. But if your right foot is forward, for example, and you're rotating the pelvis towards the front of the room, Your left hip is not going to square up with your right hip. No one does. No one ever on the planet hips get square. So if we continue then and actually square the chest, then what's happening is we're rotating the spine, not just rotating the pelvis. Mm -hmm. Is this making sense so far? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Same thing with warrior two. Let's say the right foot is forward and we're rotating towards the sidewall. We're turning away from the front of the mat. We're turning away from the front knee. As we're rotating away from the front knee, sometimes people will say, and sometimes I'm going to strongly discourage, but sometimes people will say things like, get the, the, the hips between two panes of glass, right? Or get the hips in the same plane. Well, I'm here to tell you the hips don't actually do that. They don't actually get perfectly unsquare. Does that make sense? Or in that same plane. Uh You're not going to square the hips perfectly to the front of the mat. And you're not going to square the hips perfectly to the side of the mat. I might. Well, it's not going to (laughs) happen. Okay. It's extremely rare. There's structural factors that inhibit this ability to do it. Okay. So usually what happens is for warrior one, you turn towards the front of the mat with the hips. Then you continue that rotation with the spine. So it is a twist. There's a twisting component. Similarly, when you're turning to the side of the mats, you turn the pelvis towards the side of the mat, but they're going to stop a little shy and there's a twisting component to the spine. So that's the way that warrior one and warrior two are at their roots, twists in that they have a twisting component. Mm -hmm. 
when it comes to warrior one, you're going to have to twist the spine more than when it comes to warrior two to finish the pose. Is that all like a sane, reasonable thing? Yep. Okay. So why does this matter? A lot of times when people have instability or when they have a, uh, a slight misalignment of the sacroiliac joint, it's spinal rotation that pulls at the sacroiliac joint in a way that exacerbates the pain. Mm -hmm. So it's often asymmetrical forward folds and twists that it's, it's the rotation of the spine is pulling on the sacroiliac region in a way that is exacerbating the discomfort. It's increasing the asymmetry of it. And so for me, a long time ago, students that practice with me or train with me regularly know that I, I really, it's very rare that I wholesale vilify a pose. And I, I use Warrior One once in a while, but I don't really teach Warrior One that much anymore. And I haven't probably for three, maybe four years because I find Warrior One such a setup for lower back and sacroiliac joint issues. So what I teach instead, because of this rotational component, right? What I tend to teach instead of warrior one, because I want to give people something to do, not just not to, is high lunge, crescent lunge. Mm -hmm. Because when you're doing crescent lunge, because the back heel is elevated rather than anchored onto the floor, you can actually square the hips. Mm -hmm. And then when you're squaring the hips, you're not having to deal with that rotational element in the pose. Yeah. So for me, crescent lunge is preferable to warrior one anyways. So that's what I route things through. And she could maybe sub that in. Totally any, sub that in. Yeah, of her warrior one. Yeah, so high lunges, she could also experiment with anjaneyasana. Okay. Uh, so, so low lunge, mm -hmm. but we want to make sure that the pelvic rim is level mm -hmm. and not overly anteriorly tilted. So we want to make sure the, the pelvis is not rotating too much towards the front leg. Yeah. We want to make sure we're lifting the front rim of the pelvis enough that the lower back still has its natural curve, yeah. but is not overly accentuated. Do you have any advice for subbing something in for warrior two? Well, well, I'm going to give one more pose in here, okay. yeah, but I do. Yeah. Yes. I teach a lot warrior one and a half, right? We have warrior one, we have warrior two, we have warrior three. With all due respect, those things were just made up anyways. You know what I mean? Like all the things that we see that are done physically in the yoga room was made up by people doing yoga, right? Yep. They're listening to their body and responding. So I have felt a need for a long time for a posture that is between warrior one and warrior two. So the way I teach it is essentially warrior one. Think about warrior one, set everything up for warrior one, but don't try to square the hips and the chest so much. Instead of trying to turn the hips and the chest towards the front of the mat, turn it 45 degrees. So what I think about, so I between think- between warrior one yeah, and warrior Yeah, between two. warrior one yeah. and warrior two. And what that does is that takes out the rotational elements that is so confusing to the sacroiliac and to the lumbar spine. And because those aren't actually satisfying twists anyway. There's just a twisting component that becomes confusing to a lot of lower backs and sacrums. What I would say for warrior two is 
let's say the right foot is forward. Do warrior two or experiment with this or talk to the osteopath about this. Do warrior two, but number one, don't try to quote unquote, open the hips nearly as much. Don't crank that hip open. Just rotate the, just rotate the pelvis away from the front thigh towards the side of the mat until it comfortably stops. And then don't keep trying to turn it. Just turn till it stops. And then don't turn the spine more. So essentially do like, yeah. do like a super mild warrior two where you're not trying to flatten the pelvis into the lateral plane. It's almost and then like that's warrior, how it should be done anyways. Warrior one and three quarters. That's exactly it. It's actually warrior one and a quarter and warrior one and three quarters. Well, okay. well, the first one instead of warrior one and a half is actually warrior one and a quarter. And then the oh, second yeah. one is actually warrior one and three quarters. You, you totally lost me. Fair enough. Okay. Um, My point is don't try and go so far. Yeah. Just stop. The amount of discomfort that we can alleviate in certain postures from just stopping and not trying to go so far is shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I want to address two things in this woman's question. One part is that she doesn't feel pain while she's practicing. Yes. That's always difficult to do. Yeah. With, and which so, is I mean, uncommon I guess, for SI joint issues. Yeah. So I guess I just want to bring up, it's interesting that her osteopath has identified these sets of poses, mm -hmm. but there are other poses that could be, for me, all of my SI discomfort came from forward bending and just overstretch. Yes. So, so it could be that too. Yes. So I'm just hoping she, we can encourage her to, like you were talking through people through yesterday, really, really pay attention while you're practicing and try to determine if those are the poses where it hurts um, or if there's there are other poses as well. Because we could give advice about this group of poses. Forever. Right. Uh, but if that she hasn't identified that that's what it is, then yeah, she's going to still have pain after practice. So I'm sort of taking the cue, and this happens pretty frequently, which is I will work with someone privately that has... Uh, a doctor's recommendation of what to do and what not to do. And so I just take the feedback of what they've been told not to do and then work from there mm -hmm. and sort of identify the logic of that to them. But I would also say that this is, that this is correct is that there may be some other things, especially forward bends, especially asymmetrical forward bends, mm -hmm. but the asymmetrical forward bends, one of the, tip, one of the challenging things about them is there's actually a twist in most of those to it too. So if you think about John yeah. or Shoshasana, right foot forward, left leg back. For most people, when you fold forward over the straight leg, the front leg, it's still, you have to twist a little bit to the right to get there. Yeah. Right. So what I do is, uh, and I'll be teaching this afternoon is I don't twist over the leg. I I don't fold forward over the leg. I fold in between the legs. So what we're continuing to do is, is if there is asymmetry to the hip, we still want there to be symmetry to the sacroiliac region on the right. And yeah, left. absolutely. So when we're one of the challenging things that, okay, the spine is unbelievably awesome and robust, but what starts to get really challenging for it is combinations of motions. Right. And so when you're doing that forward flexion and you're adding some rotation, 
I'm not saying it's bad. It's not bad. Bodies do that. But those are commonly things that irritate Mm -hmm. something that is already irritated. Right. And so taking out the little bit of twists, essentially trying to make the asymmetrical posture only asymmetrical in the hip socket, but not asymmetrical in the movement of the spine. Yeah. Is what is what I have always done for my SI joint issues. Yeah. Yes. So one way to think about that, I think you've said this a different way, but just like to think about from the bottom of your sacrum all the way up to your the top of your spine as one unit. Yes. So if you feel twisting, that yes. for right now, that's probably not advisable for her yes. in this particular situation. Yeah. We'll say the last thing, which is, and you know, this is, this is something that I was first exposed to probably 10, 15 years ago from a, an article that Judith Lasseter wrote with regards to twists, which is to not try to keep the pelvis from rotating when the spine is rotating, yeah. but to allow the pelvis to rotate a little bit in the direction that the spine is rotating. So if you are doing a seated twist to the right or a standing twist to the right, not trying to quote unquote, keep the hips stable or quote unquote, keep the hips fixed, but allow the pelvis to rotate a little bit in the direction that the spine is rotating in order to take that tension off the base. Yeah. Yeah, so that's we, something to experiment we with. We have a blog post about We do that. have a blog post so about that. So I'll put that. that on the show notes page. Yes, okay. Yeah, so people can see that. Yeah. Okay, next question. Bring it on. Best poses and modifications for hamstring tendon injury. Ow. It's like the worst pain is the hamstring attachment pain. I think it is not the worst pain, but it's one of the most annoying it's so and aggravating. insidious yeah. pains yeah. for a yoga practitioner because... In yoga, we're typically always doing the things that are aggravating to that thing. So the yoga practice, which we love and adore and it's helped us in so many ways, is oftentimes the thing that is continuing to perpetuate that specific injury. Mm -hmm. Okay. So to me, if we step back for a moment, I I talked a lot about this in, in this morning's class, which is I largely see see this as a sequencing issue that in most styles of yoga, certainly contemporary vinyasa yoga, there is such an overabundance of hamstring stretching compared to hamstring contracting. Mm -hmm. There's such an overabundance of outer hip and posterior hip stretching compared to outer hip and posterior hip strengthening. And so what this starts to set up over a period of time is what I see as the potential for a repetitive stress injury. Like I see most hamstring overstretch issues as a repetitive stress injury that's coming from an excess pulling and an insufficient amount of tonifying. What about just the instruction just to add? I yeah. know you were actually going down. On, I'm going there. I mean to interrupt you, but yeah. the instruction to, um, God, I haven't even heard it in so long. I can't, but it's like the instruction to start a forward bend, initiate a forward bend from the pelvis. Yes. And from like pulling the sacrum forward. Yes. Well, you should, you have to. Right. You have to rotate the pelvis forward over the femurs. But for someone who has excessive mobility, that can actually start to pull. 
So for someone who has excess mobility, they can go too far. Mm -hmm. But let me let me let me okay. follow this thing, which is I used to think that the main answer to injuries had to do with technique and doing things better. Now I don't. Now I think it has to do with the frequency of what you are doing and the infrequency of what you're not doing. And the example I give to this all the time is, let's say you are doing a style of workout where you did 100 bicep curls and only 20 tricep presses. And you did that for the next 10 years. You're creating an enormous imbalance, whether you're doing those things right or wrong. So when you are doing poses more accurately, you are reducing the possibility of problem. But if you are, if you are operating a joint a lot in one way and not much in the other way, it doesn't matter how well you operate it, you're, you're, oper you're producing a deficit in the long run. So the number one thing that we have to do, I think as yoga practitioners and teachers, especially of flow, is we don't necessarily have to do less stretching. We have to do way more hamstring strengthening. And to me, that's two things. Number one is to do more specific postures that strengthen the hamstrings. And then number two, to take advantage of the poses that do strengthen the hamstrings by actually using them. And we have to remember that your hamstrings, when they extend, they're not going to work independent of gluteus max. They're going to work with gluteus max. So in our back bends and our lunges and our standing poses we're, that we're already doing, we have to take the opportunity to actually engage the buttock and the hamstrings more. Mm -hmm. We have to make these much more resilient. Now, for someone that has the existing issue, one of the most common things people are told is to bend their knees. And what I find is bending the knees is a good solution for people with tight hamstrings to do a deeper forward bend. But it's not actually a very good solution for people with a hamstring attachment injury. And the reason why is when you bend your knees, you can actually rotate the pelvis more deeply into the pose. Mm -hmm. You pull the origin and the insertion further away from each other. So what I would say to this person is number one, reconfigure the flow so that you are doing more locust poses. You are doing more bridge poses. You are doing more lunge poses. And in all those poses, you take your fingers to where the bottom of the buttock and the hamstring meet and actually engage that stuff. You also can do fewer forward folds. And when you do those forward folds, this is so easy to say and so hard to do. Don't go as far. Yeah. And I mean, th that goes back to what I was saying, which is like, for me, so much of my hamstring attachment injury was, it was very short lived for me, which I know is kind of rare. And it's yeah. because I was basically really overworking the initial going into the pose, like around the sacral area. You so, were working too hard there. So thinking, well, uh, yeah, I was over, I was just overextending. So, so just like you want to think of in a twist, moving your spine symmetrically it's this like for me it was the same thing going into forward bends for a little while so instead of like over arching uh, right, to begin right, right, and then right, right, going right. into the pose and then pulling 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 i would just kind of go forward from my hip joints and not be quite so articulated through the different parts yeah and that was a way for me to not go as deep yes too. yeah we looked at that this morning 
we, there's a lot of people who could do it, but we have a student here named Lexi and we, you know, totally cold. I said, you know, who can comfortably do a seated forward bend cold and, you know, go deep and there's no problem. So she did it. She laid face down and I did, and I showed the common thing of when someone can do that, they're often goaded into doing even more of the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like get longer, 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 straighter, 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 longer, straighter, longer, straighter. And when we do that, when we have this sort of this extreme impulse to do the same thing more and more and more and more at one point, the same thing just keeps getting pulled on. Mm -hmm. Right. And to me, it's like, if you're in a forward bend and your torso is on the legs, you're done. It's probably far enough. Yeah. There's no, there's no, yeah. Sort of making this point is like, what are you like? Are you going to become a professional and you're going to start getting paid to go further? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's no, upside to chronically stressing the same thing the exact same way time and time and time again year after year after year and also there's no teaching in yoga that suggests that's even a halfway sane or reasonable thing right N nothing yeah right and just because you can go deeper doesn't mean you doesn't should. mean you should yeah. yeah yeah so this is a tough one more strength i would even say for this person you know I try to give all the answers that I can give in the yoga room, but once in a while people require a non-yoga room answer to a yoga room injury. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that might have to do with some very, very basic physical therapy strength training. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Should we do two more or one yeah. more? Two more? Okay. Yep. All right. So path of Santosha wants to know about neck and shoulder tension buildup after asana practice. I'm struggling to pinpoint which movements are the cause. Okay. Shoulder neck tension after an asana practice. So let's, let's, let me bring up what I just brought up, which is taking a step back and looking at these, the joints that are involved and how we use those joints when we do yoga. And I don't know that this person is mostly doing vinyasa based yoga. And I, you know, I teach vinyasa based yoga, but I, but I also hold myself accountable for the issues that it can produce. And if we relate this to hips, which we were just talking about in most yoga, especially vinyasa based yoga, there is much more hip flexion than there is hips extension. There's much more contraction of the front of the hip then there is the back of the hip. And it is not surprising to me that the two primary hip issues that we have are compression issues on the front of the hip and overstretch issues on the back of the hip. Like we, we need to start to see some correlation there. That's not necessarily causation, but we have to see this. I would say the same thing with regards to shoulders, which is there's two things that we're doing a ton of with our shoulders when we do contemporary practice. And there are three or four things that we're not doing much of with the shoulders at all in contemporary practice. So if you pause and step back and say, what shoulder actions am I mostly doing? First of all, step back and say, what is the shoulder? Well, the shoulder is a combination of several different joints, but the primary joint, the ball and socket joint, which is the glenohumeral joint, is a ball in a socket which means there's all sorts of things that that joint does. But what do we typically do? We take the arms overhead. Surya Namaskar, downward facing dog, 
handstands, arm overhead lunges, all the things that we are doing. If we step back and you did an analysis of the dominant shoulder action in flow, it is arm elevation, right? Mm -hmm. We have an extreme amount of arm elevation. The other thing that we do a ton of is anterior weight bearing. So plank, chaturanga kind of stuff. So we do down dog stuff. We do plank stuff. We do chaturanga stuff. Those aren't bad things. Those are all good things. But tying it into the early conversation, it doesn't... Doing something correctly helps us not produce injuries or issues. But even if you do something correctly, if you do that thing in excess over years compared to something else, you're going to create, you're going to create an issue. So I don't know this person, but the, but the sort of the jump that I could take is my guess is that there's too much overhead reaching of the arms. There's too much plank chaturanga action of the arms, and there's too little of the opposite motions, meaning there's too meant too little lat engagers by pulling down. There's too little middle and lower fiber of trapezius engagement by hugging the scapula in and pulling them down. So over, so over. Yeah, the top of the shoulders and the front of the shoulders are probably overworked from all the hand forward and all the hand above the head. And then the opposite part is probably underworked, which is that the bottom of the scapula and the medial border of the scapula is probably underworked because there's not nearly as much reach the arms down, take the arms back behind you kind of actions. Yeah. The, the most likely culprit muscle wise is the levator scapula. The, Levator scapula is something that I have kind of a, I have a complicated relationship to my right levator scapula. Tell me about it. It's needy. It just wants my attention all the time because my shoulders will be feeling fine. And then my right levator scapula will say, you're not paying enough attention to me. And it will go into spasm and it hurts. So a lot of times what we think is, oh, it's the upper fibers of the trapezius. And that may be the case, but the levator scapula is, lives under them. And it's more of a, it works a little earlier in the equation. So when you make a movement in your body, there's like this huge cascade of actions that are happening to move the thing. And not everything, not all muscles within a group are firing at the same time. So the levator scapula, when you take the arm overhead, that's one of the very early initiators of motion. And so probably my guess is, is that the levator scapula and the scalenes are getting overly tight from that arm overhead stuff. Yeah. And probably also in combination with all the things we do in day to day life. In day to day life. That's a very, that's a really good. All the computer, phone, sitting at a desk, you know, forward head, driving. That's super important. The head forward and down thing. You know, I think... That a lot, of, a lot of teachers think, oh, our students are stressed out. Their shoulders are hunched around their ears. I don't actually see that. 
What I do see is our heads are forward and down, not our shoulders are up. So when the head is forward and down, that's making all the muscles in the side and the back of the neck work much more dip, much more intensely because the head's off its axis. Yeah. Right. And then when you go in the yoga room and you start doing yoga practice, it doesn't even feel good. Like it doesn't feel like a relief to your body. It's like more just adding more stress to those areas. Um, Just totally anecdotally, what the, what I have most success when I get this flare up is, uh, and just sort of a plug for Jill Miller and the kind of stuff that she does, which is, I have a difficult time stretching what needs to be stretched in my shoulders. I have a much easier time with those balls. Yeah. The yoga tune-up balls yeah, or, or so whatever, right. you know, not to overly plug well, that. There's I, other I, things. I will plug the tune-up balls yeah. because like she had said to me, we were using like regular tennis balls and things in our house until I interviewed Jill. And then I got the balls and she had said to me like, they're kind of sticky they're just pliable, uh-huh. but they're they, the, the surface of them is kind of sticky. And um, also they come in those, they come in like packets of two. Yeah. So you can roll on two at the same time. Yeah. Like I find them amazing. Yeah. So for me, for the, okay. If the front of my shoulders and chest feel tight, it's easy for me to stretch them. If the inner borders of the shoulders feel tight, it's easy to stretch them. If the levator scapula, the sort of upper shoulder and neck feels tight and chronic, it's not easy to stretch it. Mm-mm. It's really hard to get good leverage on it. And again, in vinyasa yoga, we just keep taking the arms overhead, which is firing those muscles even more. So what I find knocks off that contraction a little bit is, yes, is getting the right pressure on that area, yeah. which I usually do with, uh, with, with one of those tune-up balls, right? The other thing is to just make a plug for same thing that we were talking about earlier is we we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we're just trying to do the thing correctly but we're not m- regulating how much we're doing that thing relative to other things so we also have to look at doing more poses regularly within the flow where the shoulders are actively pulling down mm-hmm. and back not just actively pulling up and pushing forward. We, 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 we have to look at both. We have to look at how do we knock down the, the tension and the resistance? How do we deal with that symptom? But then also how do we deal with the overall issue of making sure our portfolio of usage is, is actually balanced? Yeah. And so when you were talking about the mid fibers, mm-hmm. it's we want to strengthen there more yes. too, right? Yeah. So you're talking about... Things that retract mm-hmm. and descend the scapula. Yeah. Yeah. And do you do that in locust? Locust. Yeah. Cobra pose is really good for it. And then also, um, I do a lot and I have classes uh, that focus on this on Yoga Glow where in standing poses, instead of just doing another warrior one where the arms reach overhead... I reach the arms overhead and then do an imaginary lat pull down or pull up where we're pulling those down and starting to do to to do the opposite of that thing. Yeah. So that's where, again, it's like I think a big answer to all these things is actually a systemic reevaluation of all of the arm overhead stuff and all of the arm forward stuff, not vilifying it, but saying got it covered. 
and just balancing Let's do a out. little bit of the opposite. Yeah, yeah. It's not that complicated. One more thing that adds to the tension is, is like for a woman just carrying more weight in the chest. I can remember going to a Rolfer once. And this is me after a breast reduction, you guys. I can remember going to a Rolfer and him saying like, oh man, I just feel so bad for you because of your breasts. And I was like, hey, what are you talking about? But what he was talking about was that that right. added weight is hard. Like there's, you have to do a lot of work to counteract that. It's, well, that's, it's more pulling forward and down, right? In the head pulling forward and down and then yeah. chest pulling forward and down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, last question comes from our very own Naomi Gold. So, have we demonized Chaturanga? I've learned a lot of great tips about how to stay safe in Chaturanga from Jason, including not lowering more than halfway. I love his tips, and I'm starting to think a little further on this. I teach people to lower more than halfway all the time to go to Locust or Cobra, and really believe that it's the transition from Chaturanga to Up Dog that is the culprit of so much injury, not just in the shoulders, but in the lower back, back and not really Chaturanga. What tips does Jason have for cueing and direction during transitions when people kind of check out, especially at the end of a 75 minute class? Okay. So a handful of things here. I think that the, f the answer to the first question is I haven't demonized Chaturanga. Most people haven't demonized Chaturanga, but Chaturanga does kind of become a little bit of the one-stop shop answer for anything that's gone wrong in the shoulders. It's like the scapegoat. It, it can easily be the scapegoat. And to be fair, it can often be the problem. It can often be the trigger. So here I'm going to beat the exact same drum that I've been beating, which is we need to do chaturanga in a way that's biomechanically sound, but it doesn't matter how well you do something if you do that thing too much relative to other things. So remember, when you're working with shoulders, you're working with a profoundly dynamic joint. So continuing to just do the same thing the same way with the shoulders, even if it's being done well, may present a repetitive stress injury, right? And so we have to reevaluate the, not chaturanga, we have to reevaluate the frequency of chaturanga, and then we have to reevaluate the infrequency of other things that are dynamic strengtheners for the shoulder joint, mm -hmm. right? So I do, I really do. I said it earlier in the episode. Let's let's try not to vilify or scapegoat individual poses, and yet let's also not be in denial of those potential poses that that are harder to get away with. So that's the number one thing I would say is, and I will tell everyone. I've been telling people this weekend, my local students know, I tell people this on trainings all the time. I probably do in my public classes, two thirds less chaturanga than I used to as of the last year and a half. So what I do instead is for all of my sort of quote unquote vinyasas mm -hmm. or salutations, about one third of the vinyasas I do, I have people come all the way to the ground inhale and sphinx 
and then exhale, come into forearm plank. They inhale in forearm plank, then they exhale, they lower back down into sphinx. And then we repeat that a couple times, okay? So about one third of the salutations or vinyasas I do, we do that. One third of the salutations we do, we come all the way to the floor and we inhale into locust pose, exhale back into downward facing dog. And then one third of the salutations or vinyasas we do, our actual chaturanga and up dog, mm -hmm. okay? So what I'm trying to do by doing this is really two things. Number one, do fewer things that I just anecdotally think or believe or experience are contributing to a repetitive stress injury for people that do a lot of vinyasa yoga or vinyasa-based yoga for a long time. You can't do anything regularly all the time and not and not risk repetitive stress injuries from the same motor pattern. Mm -hmm. Like that's what a, that's what it is. Yeah. Right. So I'm trying to do less of the things to alleviate the possibility of a repetitive stress injury. And I'm trying to do more of other things. So for me, it's not a net loss. It's not like, Oh, we're not doing as many chaturangas and up dogs. It's we are getting to do way more of other combinations that are equally strengthening and equally viable. And I believe much more uh, balancing for the entire system, right? Mm -hmm. And I will tell, I want to tell everyone this because we might think to ourselves, oh, but my students really, they want to work hard. They want to do blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so do mine. I teach a level two, three in a heated studio in San Francisco, California. So the, the majority of the students that come to my class are super fit, they're super young. They want to work hard and I make sure they do. So locust pose done well is hard. Mm -hmm. Sphinx pose to forearm plank, hold that, repeat that, repeat that. To me, those two other things keep people working with the same degree of intensity in chaturanga. I don't feel like by taking a third of my chaturangas out of my sequences, I'm making people work less. Mm -hmm. I think I'm making them work the same amount, if not more, mm -hmm. but differently. Right. So that, that I think is the most important thing. I think the second thing is I'm not going to, I don't want to go through all the detail here because we wrote on the blog, it was like a four or maybe five parts. Chaturanga guide. Chaturanga guide. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I go through a lot of the detail in there. And even in the comment section, because there's some people that are contrarian to, to what Paul, the orthopedic surgeon who I wrote it with, he's a shoulder surgeon, but people didn't want to believe that his opinion and the studies that he has are actually correct. Mm -hmm. And so in the comment section, like I post the link to the actual aggregated studies about shoulder stability with uh, arm adduction versus abduction and all these. So if people want to get really nerdy and technical on this, let's just, let's send everyone there. Okay. Mm -hmm. The last thing to this is, and he's bringing up the transitions. Right. Okay. So what I want to say is the most important thing, if you are coming all the way to the ground, bring your knees down first, bring the knees down first in your transitions. Because then you are dealing with about 50% less weight. And then when you're dealing with less weight, you can probably make the, you can lower down and lift back up 
with less distortion that gets produced. So wait, you're saying if you're if you're lowering lowering from chaturanga all the way to the ground, or if you're lowering from chaturanga and going to up dog, put your knees down. Okay, so two different situations. If you're skipping chaturanga, but you're going all the way to the floor. Okay. To do locust or cobra or anything else, bring your knees down first. Okay. Similarly, if you struggle with chaturanga, bring your knees down. Just literally bring your knees down <laughs> and then you have much less weight and you can control that weight much more easily. If you think about this, right, it's sort of classic gym situation. Think about being at the gym and think about, you know, either it's been you or you've seen it. Someone, almost invariably a guy, almost invariably either really young or not really young, has way too much weight on their on their bench or their curl or whatever, and they're just sort of throwing the whole body around. If they took a lot of that weight off and did it better, they would get stronger faster. Mm -hmm. So when you struggle with chaturanga by bringing the knees down, it's like taking weight off the bar. Okay. And that allows you to not only be at less risk because your technique's better, but it's going to make you stronger faster because your technique's better. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then when the knees are on the ground, it's much easier to transition into upward facing dog or locust or cobra or back into downward facing dog. Mm -hmm. So, so... I don't disagree with Naomi at all that the that those transitional, but but we don't want to set this up. We don't we don't want to set up. It's it's chaturanga or it's or it's the transitions. Yeah. No 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 no. That that's that totally is beside the point. It's because it all tends to work together. So what we have to do is do more different transitions, and then in the transitions that are chatur that that are chaturanga and doing things from chaturanga. If this is hard for you, bring your knees down. Mm -hmm. Bring both down. And then, and then keep that control in the midsection and you'll get stronger faster because it's more technically sound and accurate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is an awkward transition when you think about it. Going it is. To talk. <laughs> it is. I wonder anecdotally, like when you're teaching, I mean, how often you see it done, you know, well versus... I see it done well most of the time. Oh, that's good. Because I think for two reasons. One, because I don't go fast when I teach. Mm -hmm. I don't go slow. Like deep breathing is not slow, but I don't I don't go at a pace that I can't breathe deeply mm -hmm. because to me that just for me and my process that undermines what I think this is. Yeah. The other thing is that when you take your time to breathe, you're not going as fast so you can control the motions a little bit, a little bit easier. But it is difficult. I mean, these are difficult things. And I'll even sort of say this because it's popping to mind, you know, sort of in the rear view mirror. Somehow you and I were talking a little bit about this in a different way. Neither of us totally resonated with Anusara Yoga, but 
But in the rearview mirror, we sort of step back and say, well, there were a lot of different things about it that we did resonate with yeah. and appreciate. And I think in its entire package, it, it wasn't, it didn't fit our personalities. Right. Right. Uh, but but nothing nothing fits everyone's personality. Yeah. Right. I, I think I I appreciated a lot of the alignment that I learned from it. The way that he packaged the alignment, I thought was really smart. But and so the thing that's sort of pop, popping in my head right now is, I didn't take that many classes with John, but what I remember doing a lot of was Cobra, not Updog. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. And I remember thinking like. Why do we have this impulse that everything has to be routed through Chaturanga and Updog? No, if you took an Anasara class, right, you you spent the majority of the time in Cobra and he made it okay for that to be the case. So so this is what we have to do as a as sort of and I, I do literally, I tell this to my students all the time. I say, hey, just a quick reminder, we do a lot less Chaturangas than we used to and a lot more other things. And that isn't because I don't think you're doing it right or you can't do it. Mm -hmm. It's because I think you've done enough of them and I don't think you've done enough of other things. So let's do the other things that are actually complementary to that so that we also can do that. Mm -hmm. That's part of the reason, too, is like part of the reason that I want to help my students strengthen their hamstrings and their hips is so that they can keep stretching their hamstrings and hips without problems. Yeah. Part of the reasons that I want people to do more sort of lat and trapezius and scapular strengthening is so we can do the arm overhead. Part of the reason I want to take some of the chaturangas out is so that we can keep doing chaturangas. And I, and I think that, you know, we just have to be, we have to be wise and honest enough to step back and do bug fixes. Right. And I've been saying this a lot in like all my trainings, all my classes is yoga is really good. It's really awesome. It's really valuable. And like everything else on the planet, let's keep let's keep doing minor updates here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if I were to ask a thousand people that do yoga is what's one of like, here's a list of 20 things. Pick three of them. And one of the things I had on that list was balance, right? Meaning not just being able to stand on one foot, but more a physical and psycho-emotional balance. I guarantee that's one of the main things everyone wants. So for me, as someone that really looks at these things, I have to step back and say, is my sequencing actually balanced for the hip joint? Is my sequencing actually balanced for the shoulder joint? And the reality is no. Mm -hmm. And that's why I continue to make these little updates where I'm not vilifying anything or wholesale removing things, but I'm trying to do slightly less of the things that are always done in a flow and a few more of the things that are not done as much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, actually, I lied. There is one more question. It comes from Amy and she wants to know what's your favorite punk rock song? <laughs> I can't answer that question. Really? Single question? Single song? How about, what's your favorite band? I can give you top three, three. or four. Just well, three. I just, just... three. Jawbreaker, Avail, Rancid. And, and that hits a very broad, those of you <laughs> listeners out there, that hits a broad, a broad range. Sick of it all. Okay. Now, now we have some, because that just got New York hardcore in there. So now that's, we got emo... <laughs> 
And we I got like New York hardcore. listening to Cat Stevens. So, I mean, I have no idea what you're talking about. How did we end up together? I don't know. Cat Stevens and like Lauren Hill. <laughs> I grew up listening to Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens could bring me to tears quicker than anything else. Totally. Still to this day. I have to choke it back. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> Reminds me of being a kid. I can't remember why, but I was listening. Cat Stevens came on recently and yeah, I completely lost it. Really? Yes. Yeah. He's so good. You, I'm not going to say the song, but I have been working very hard. You and I are both good parents, so I'm not taking anything away from this. But one of the things that I've been working really hard as a parent is to try to imbue into our child a musical sensibility. I know where he's going. That does not include (sighs) pop. Blah, bleep 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 bleep. Taylor Swift. I'm I not, mean, come I'm on. I'm not being negative about Taylor Swift. Okay, but I have been exposing her to a very broad range: punk, hardcore, reggae, ska, dub. Like actually, things that people should be listening to. Okay. And I'm like, okay. Paula Abdul. And she's been coming around. She's been coming she's around. Always, yeah, she she's likes been coming it. around. She likes the interrupters. Mm-hmm. Right. So she's been coming around. Mm-hmm. And now... How, how have I poisoned her? You have poisoned her. <laughs> because there is a song that she keeps asking to listen to and she's What's singing it. It wasn't your I fault. don't know where that song even came from. Literally. I, wish I have to sing it now so that like people... It's the baby... Why don't you just meet me in the middle? You, now stop stop before we get sued by Warner she Brothers. Begs for us to play this song. I can't like believe 24/7. Like the amount of work and dedication I have put in. And like this this is something that happens all the time. Like, cause we split driving her to school. So when I drive her to the school, you don't know this, but when I drive her to the school. You play punk music? Quietly. <laughs> And it's, no, 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 but it's usually not punk. It's usually like the clash or something or like the jam. You know what I mean? Like something that is, that something that is like, uh, you know, palatable. Mm-hmm. Quietly. Mm-hmm. It's subconscious because I don't want to play it loud enough that she rejects it. I'm trying to get in there subconsciously <laughs> because I think music and identity is a big deal. Yeah, we need to finish this conversation offline because I'm not sure I want her going to punk concerts oh, when she's 13 years old. Would you see how well-adjusted I am? <laughs> <laughs> On that note. Wait, did you know that I started a new Pandora station for her? And I wonder if you approve or not. Boston? Squeeze. <laughs> the 80s thing is really hard yeah, for me. Yeah, I mean, what can I say? Like once in a while, there's an 80s thing that works. But not as, I'm not, the 80, no, nah, not as much. I like, thought- I didn't like it then. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like, that, that, because it was the 80s that, it was the 80s pop that I was strongly rejecting. Yeah. By listening to what I listened to. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't really like it then. I guess there's some nostalgia to it now. Like Britpop. More early it's 90s. squeezes is Britpop. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's the there's beginning of Britpop. It's the origin of Britpop. Not really, I'm just but- kidding. I, I don't even know. Yeah, I don't but anyway, know. how's that for an answer to the punk rock question? <laughs> I think we covered it all. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks Wait, for being well, who, here. Who asked that? Amy? Amy. What Amy? Do I know this Amy? I don't, I don't know if you know this Amy. Oh, okay. I don't. Oh, maybe. I know. Yeah, I think. I, anyways. Does anyone in the room want to own up to asking it? <laughs> oh, that Amy. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Amy. 
All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can find the show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 110. Thank you to Erica Rodifer-Winters and Daniel Schaefer, who helped me produce this podcast. And if you're enjoying it, it's always super duper, 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 duper helpful if you could leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Okay, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice. Qué buenos decir sin hablar nada. Qué buenos compartir una jornada helada. Te extraño y ahora sé quién eres. Qué suerte ser aquel tú quieres. Me siento afortunada entre todas las mujeres. Te quiero y quiero que te quieras. Y sé que quieres tardes armoniosas, canciones pegajosas. Disfrutar muchas, muchas cosas.